the human voice has many different qualities. Every human voice has frequency, that's the vibrations of our vocal cords. Every voice has a harmonic structure, these are the different tones we speak in. And every human voice has an intensity, an amount of air released. You may recall your grade school principal, maybe that's just me. And each of these, we could continue to break it down. They all have an additional number of qualities to them. In fact, there's so many, some believe every voice is unique, kind of like a fingerprint. We each have our own unique voice. Now, to illustrate this, we can look to the infant. Even before an infant sees the light of day, while in utero, that infant can recognize the voice of his mother. Now, a baby can't understand mom's words, but proximity to her helps him understand. He recognizes her voice. And keep in mind, it's pretty loud in there. He still knows the voice of mom. And upon arrival, when the baby's born, the infant already knows the voice of mom. This means then, all of this taken together, that throughout our lives, maybe without knowing it, we've been recognizing and recording and recalling human voices. But there is one voice that you and I know distinctly. There is one voice that rises above the rest. This is the voice of our Lord. God speaks. He speaks in his word. He speaks in his son. He speaks in his silence. Today, he speaks in creation. Psalm 29 is the voice of the Lord in the storm. King David will witness a massive weather event. It is a monstrous thunderstorm. This is not a storm caused by Mother Nature. This is not a storm caused by mankind. This is a storm caused by God. God is king over his creation. And David sees this storm as an awesome display of his power. He's going to describe the storm as the voice of the Lord. Now, as this voice of the Lord in our text today, as this voice speaks to us, it speaks to us where we are. In other words, this has great application for you and I. Psalm 29 speaks to the normal Christian, to the man or woman influenced by the world around him and her. It speaks even advertently, inadvertently, to to the different ways that the world can dilute or divert our worship. I'd give you just a few examples. This this speaks to our consumerism. Consumerism bleeds over into our worship. Consumerism comes to get, not to give. Consumerism seeks to make Christianity a service. It turns it into a commodity, something that I come to receive for me. This psalm will uproot that attitude. This psalm is going to name the name of God 18 different times. This psalm is all about God. Worship is about God. 
Worship is about God first. Worship is about God primarily. Then we receive the benefit. God, called Yahweh in this passage, is the focus of our worship, not me. And this helps our consumerism. This psalm also helps our secularism. Secularism seeks to remove God and remove him from certain areas of life. In other words, secularism comes not seeking to submit to God's word, but to create a God that fits my world. Now, the challenge for the believer, you know this, is to keep Jesus as Lord over every arena of our lives. And this psalm is going to remind us that God is sovereign and that God is powerful and he does reign over our lives. We'll learn that he is worthy of worship because he is a majestic God. Well, in one more way, this psalm impacts our legalism. Legalism seeks to please God by some form of a trade where I give him a certain amount of works and then receive his approval. Well, this psalm is going to ask nothing and command nothing. This psalm is a reminder that part of Christian life is to simply enjoy God, to worship him for who he is to hear his voice, to witness his works. Today's psalm reminds us that God is majestic and he is worthy of our worship. This morning we will hear three tones of the voice of the Lord in the storm. And to break that down, the first two verses are really a call to worship. The psalmist calls for worship of the king. The verses three through nine will hear his case for worship. We're going to worship because God is powerful and because God is worthy. He will make that case. And finally, we'll discover in the end, verses 10 and 11, what I'm calling the the crown in worship. The God who puts his strength on display offers that strength to you and I. Well, it's to Psalm 29. We go this morning. Psalm 29, beginning in verse 1. A psalm of David Ascribe to the Lord, O sons of the mighty, ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord the glory due to his name. Worship the Lord in holy array. The voice of the Lord is upon the waters. The God of glory thunders. The Lord is over many waters. The voice of the Lord is powerful. The voice of the Lord is majestic. The voice of the Lord breaks the cedars. Yes, the Lord breaks in pieces the cedars of Lebanon. He makes Lebanon skip like a calf and Syrian like a young wild ox. The voice of the Lord hews out flames of fire. The voice of the Lord shakes the wilderness. The Lord shakes the wilderness of Kadesh. The voice of the Lord makes the deer to calve and strips the forest bare. And in his temple, everything says, glory. The Lord sat as king at the flood. Yes, the Lord sits as king forever. The Lord will give strength to his people. The Lord will bless his people with peace. Well, this psalm is a message first to those in the heavens. It is then a message to you and I down here. It's a psalm that begins in the west, it moves to the east, and then to the north, and I'll explain all that a little bit later. But I want to begin with this call to worship. The first two verses, David makes a call to worship. 
Three times in two verses, he is calling us to ascribe to the Lord. And with each of these repetitions, he's going to go a little further. He's going to advance his call a little longer. He's going to build it out. He begins with who, who is to worship. Then what do we worship? Then why do we worship? And then how we worship. In fact, these first two verses may be one of the best definitions of worship in all of the Bible. So who is to worship? David calls upon the sons of the mighty. Some translations read, you heavenly beings. Now these are angels, and it is perhaps a strange command for David to make, to call upon the angels of heaven to worship God. Now, the word ascribe means simply give. Give to the Lord, O mighty ones. This same phrase, sons of the mighty or sons of God, elsewhere in the Old Testament, it appears there and it refers to angels. In Job chapters 1 and 2, these sons of God present themselves before the Lord. Later in Job 38, they shout for joy when God creates stars. In Psalm 89, no one is like the Lord not even the angels, not even the sons of God. Almost certainly, David's calling upon the angels to worship God. So the question is, why? Why would David do this? Why wouldn't he call upon Israel or his people? I don't exactly know why, but I'm going to make a guess anyway. Now, we know that David lived in a very different world than you and I do. He lived in a different context. He did not live in a post-enlightenment world. He would have had a stronger sense of the supernatural, I believe. This stronger sense of the supernatural would have been held by both him and his fellow Jews. And David himself was a prophet. The Bible tells us that. And David spoke to prophets. God spoke to David through the prophets. He would have held a Jewish theology of angels. In fact, later in Psalm 103, he commands them again to give worship to the Lord, giving us a glimpse into his theology. In Psalm 103, verse 20, David says very similarly, Bless the Lord, you his angels, mighty in strength, who perform his word, obeying the voice of his word. Bless the Lord, all you his hosts, who serve him, doing his will. We might say that David held a high view of angels. And I believe that he is caught up in this psalm, caught up with who God is. And he's going to call upon all created beings, beginning with the angels, and then eventually God's people calling upon all to ascribe to God worship. Now, you and I are not angels, despite what you might have been told by your grandmother. But there's still application for us, is there not? We can learn something about who God is in this passage. And we can learn something about how we ought to think about God and how we ought to approach God, how we ought to worship. So I think there's plenty of application for you and I here. So he's building out this call to worship. Remember, he keeps building it out in these first few verses. So who's to worship? The angels. What are they to worship? They're to worship God's glory and God's strength. David uses the personal name for God. In Hebrew, it's pronounced Yahweh. 
Yahweh. In all caps in English, it appears as Lord. And you'll see this appear multiple times throughout Psalm 29. This is the God of all creation. This is the God of Israel. Yahweh is. In fact, when God tapped Moses to go to Egypt to rescue his people, Moses asked him, what name should I give them for the God who sends me? Well, the Lord replies, Yahweh, meaning something along the lines of, I am who I am, or I will, I will cause to be something along that line. So David says, ascribe to Yahweh glory and strength. Glory has to do with a reputation or, or with honor. This has to do with a, a heaviness. Elsewhere in the Old Testament, it's used literally of Absalom's hair. Absalom is King David's son. He must have had quite the do. In 2 Samuel chapter 14, verse 26, when Absalom cut the hair of his head, and it was at the end of every year that he cut it, for it was heavy on him, he weighed the hair of his head at 200 shekels. That's five pounds of hair if you're keeping track. That's the same word. The word used of his hair, heavy, is the same word used of glory. But with the Lord, it's different. There's a weightiness to his reputation. There's a weightiness to his presence. There's a weightiness to his power. In fact, the Hebrew word is pronounced kabod. That word itself, doesn't that sound heavy? Kabod? That's the word for glory, and it's a heaviness into who the person of God is. God is a God of infinite splendor, and then that worth is going to be expressed in his strength. You see, glory and strength are paired together. And this is a great redirection for you and I. It's, it was Charles Haddon Spurgeon who made the observation of glory and strength. Men are too apt to claim these for themselves, although they belong exclusively to the self-existent God. That's a great reminder there. Uh, moving on to our third line, ascribe to the Lord the glory due his name. This is why we worship. We worship because God is worthy. That we must worship Yahweh is clear. All we need to do is look around. The Bible continues to point us to the created order. The heavens are telling of the glory of God and their expanse is declaring the work of his hands. Paul declares in Acts 14, verse 17, that God did not leave himself without witness and that he did good and gave you rains from heaven and fruitful seasons. And Paul will say again in Romans chapter 1, verse 20, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made. The Bible invites you and I to look around at the created order and see quite clearly that there is a God, and he is powerful. And David says that it must be Yahweh alone that we worship, set against other gods or other religions. Now, some believe that when David writes this psalm, he's writing against local religion. We would call it paganism or idolatry, other religion of the area. Now, if you've read your Old Testament, you may recognize the name Baal or Baal. 
Baal is the name of the false god of the Canaanite religion. And before Israel moved into the promised land, the Canaanites occupied the land. And this was their religion. It was a a worship of Baal. Now, God, you may recall, was very big on eradicating this worship. What is he telling Israel? Don't dabble in it. Don't mix it into what I'm giving you. He's telling them, don't tolerate it. And then throughout the rest of the Old Testament, stories abound, sadly, of the consequences of doing just that. And if you looked up a picture of Baal this morning, what would this picture look like? Well, he would look like a storm god. The god of fertility, who brought rain, and who nourished crops. In one hand, this Baal would have this crazy-looking spear pointed on one end with all kinds of zigzags going off in different directions on the top. In his other hand, he has a club. He uses that to beat on things to make thunder. False worshipers would plead with this God to please stir up the waters and rain upon our dry land. And you know the scene. Sweltering heat. Year three of a drought. No rain. A man is atop a mountain that much closer to the blazing sun and 450 prophets arrive. They set up an ox to sacrifice to their Baal. All morning they're calling on Baal, oh Baal, answer us. Nothing. By the time it gets to afternoon, they begin cutting themselves with swords and with lances. Silence. And then this man, the one man, he builds an altar. He gets an ox for sacrifice. And he dumps water on it. He soaks it in water. Don't let that get lost on you. Keep in mind, this man is dumping out buckets of water in year three of a drought. And he prays, O Yahweh, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, let it be known today that you are God in Israel. Answer me, O Yahweh, answer me that this people may know, O Yahweh, that you are God. And what happens next? There's a tiny cloud on the horizon. It's a little black puff. And eventually, the sky grows black, and the clouds multiply, and heavy rain comes. This does not happen by Baal, but by Yahweh, the Lord. David understood the local religion, even if Elijah hadn't come in his time yet. And in this psalm, it's almost as though David has latched onto that, onto this God with lightning and this God with thunder and this God who controlled the rain. He latches onto this religion and he brings it in and ascribes it all to one God, Yahweh, the Lord God. We were made to worship him. The Lord is our creator and he is worthy of that worship. Well, we see also that we are to worship the Lord in holy array, the final movement in this opening call. Now, if we're going to interpret that line purely physically, it means that we would bow down to the ground, for that's what worship means. And it means that we might be dressed quite ornately. This probably has this overtones of the high priestly garments worn, this holy array that David speaks of. 
But the Psalms also possess a poetic nature to them. And in fact, the rest of the Bible really bears this out, that there's probably more going on here than just the physical aspect. We know that the Lord is after our hearts. Even if we come and we bow down, what is he still concerned about? The heart. I I guess this psalm is asking us, are we coming to God humbly? Are we coming to God lowly? For that's how God would want us to worship him. Do we come with our hearts in holy array? Are the hearts pure? Are the hearts holy? Are they repentant of sin? So David begins this psalm with a call to worship. And again, that's a pretty good definition of worship if you're looking for one in the Bible. And since we are all worshipers, by the way, we can't help but be worshipers. What we worship and how we worship matter. This involves how we're worshiping and why we're worshiping and what we're worshiping. All these things are really important. And on this last point here, I I want us to consider this morning just what we worship. And we are a Bible church, so we ought to get this question right. What do we worship? We worship Jesus and God and the Lord. In a Bible church, we can answer these things well, but the question ultimately arises, which God do we worship? Do we know the Lord? Not, not are we saved this morning, but do we know Christ? Do we have a relationship with him, just as we have relationships with other people? I believe one of the reasons that worship can be so dull and so dreary, one of the reasons that worship becomes lifeless and unanimated is one of the reasons that worship turns into a box to check or or one of the reasons that we would make it a ritual or one of the reasons worship gets pushed down on the schedule, it's, it's because of this, because we don't know the Lord. In many ways, what we're doing here today, it's just an overflow of the rest of our week, which is an important reminder for you and I that, that we want to think about worship and the Lord and relationship throughout the week, not just on Sunday. You know these things. If there's no well to pull from this morning, if it's, if it's but a puddle from the week that was, we're going to make just a little splash. It's not that exciting. But if we've been working and walking with the Lord through the week, We come in here with a deep well. We have a lake. We're going to make a deluge. So we want to invest in a relationship with Jesus Christ. We want to give him our attention and our energy and our time and our affections, not just on Sunday, but through the week. That's the call to worship. Well, David's going to build a case now on why we should do this. Why worship him? This is the case for worship in verses 3 through 9. David's going to describe the power and majesty that that one might see in a thunderstorm. He's going to ascribe that power to God. Now, living back east, I used to love the big thunderstorms. And perhaps you've experienced one of these. I mean, it's the sinister black clouds on the horizon. You could see them, these angry forms, like trying to lead the pack and arriving to rain on you. They were monsters. I remember smelling the rain before it arrived. I mean, when it rained back there in these thunderstorms, it was not a light drizzle. I mean, it rained big drops and it rained hard. It came all at once. It's like someone just opened up a dump truck. And then it just began this heavy rain. It was like this pulse that wouldn't stop while it rained. And the wind, if we watched the deck chairs, you could see the deck chairs start to rock. 
You could hear the neighbor's chimes get really rowdy. And it would just blow these sheets of water across the road. They didn't even reach the drain. It just blew the water around. And the lightning, it came not as a bolt, but as a series of quick flashes. And when that thunder erupted, when it erupted directly above the house, it would shake. We had an electric stove. It was metal. It would shake the pans in the stove. And then the glass on the hutch would shake. You could hear it. These displays are the work of the Lord. It's a, dis- it's a display of God's strength and a display of God's glory, says David. And David's going to point us to this type of thunderstorm to see the power and the glory of God. Now, verses 3 through 9 have three movements to them. In verses 3 and 4, the storm will emerge on the sea. In verses 5 through 7, the storm then tears through the mountains. And in verses 8 and 9, the storm will then roll out to the desert. And if you're tracking with this, it's almost as though we have a map to follow, which I tried to provide you. Sean, could you show that map for us for a moment? This is pretty neat. So when we begin our journey in verse 3, we begin on the waters. This is somewhere out in the Mediterranean where the storm begins. The storm then moves inland into these mountains. These are called the Cedars of Lebanon, or Lebanon for referring to the nation. The storm then moves over to a mountain called Hermon, or Syrian in your Bibles. We'll talk about that in a minute. After that, it's going to move out to Kadesh, or the wilderness of Kadesh. There's a Kadesh that's located in modern-day Syria. This is number four at the top. And some people believe that's the direction it went. Now, if we go with Kadesh being the Kadesh of the wilderness wanderings, this is kind of a bizarre storm. It probably didn't do this, but it may have circled the whole way back around because Kadesh Barnea, number four at the bottom, is how Israel passed into the land. That was a very famous Kadesh among the Israelites. And what I did in this one, too, I gave you a red star. That's where Jerusalem is in relationship to this storm. And then the two circles at the top, those are really the mountains of Lebanon. Uh, The mountain on the left is actually called Lebanon, and then the other one's called Anti-Lebanon. The guy in charge of naming that mountain wasn't very creative. (laughs) So this would be an idea for your head. Map this out in your mind as we walk through these verses. The storm would have done something like this if we're tracking the geography of it. It's pretty neat how David was able to record that. So in verse 3... David says, the voice of the Lord is upon the waters. The God of glory thunders, the Lord is over many waters. Now this has Genesis 1 written all over it. In Genesis 1, the Spirit of God was moving over the surface of the waters. Then God said. God is going to go on to say nine times in Genesis, Genesis 1. And every time he says something, something is created from nothing. Just a few psalms later, in Psalm 33, verse 6, David writes, By the word of the Lord, the heavens were made. So here is this big, big God who is able to simply speak and bring about creation. Here he's creating a storm, and his voice is in that storm. He's interacting with his creation. And as I mentioned, this storm is probably originating over the Mediterranean Sea. It's at least moving inland from that direction over these many waters, 
And from that map, you saw that that sea borders the entire west coast or the entire west side of Israel. So in verse 5, this intense storm, it's going to come now off the sea and it makes landfall. The voice of the Lord breaks the cedars. Yes, the voice breaks the cedars of Lebanon. Now these cedars are the much desired cedars of Lebanon. It refers to trees. Lebanon borders Israel just to the north. And we saw that on our map. Uh, these cedar trees, David sought to, to build the palace. His son Solomon will want them to, to build the temple. Now, you and I, we're in the Pacific Northwest, so we know big trees. Um, the cedars over there don't get quite as big as our fir trees do here. But nevertheless, to the Israelite of the day, these are humongous trees. They tend to grow pretty fast. They reach 120 feet tall. They can be eight feet thick. And they're not only good for building buildings, great for construction, but they're also great on sea. So these were ideal for shipbuilding. They held up better against salt water. You and I like them for our closets. Now, this, that a single storm could come and tear through a cedar tree, that's a pretty miraculous feat. It's going to splinter this cedar tree, and it's no small thing. In fact, the Hebrew word for break in our text, often in the Old Testament, it's used of God. It is God who is doing the breaking. You see that David says this twice. It's almost as though he wants to underscore the point. There's two beats in the line. Yahweh breaks the cedars. Yes, Yahweh breaks in pieces the cedars. And not only do the trees splinter, but the mountains quake. He makes Lebanon skip like a calf and Syrian like a young wild ox. Verse 6 carries what's called that Hebrew parallelism, where two ideas are set side by side to amplify the point. They're going to work together, these two lines, to communicate something to us. And you might notice in that verse, verse 6, that both lines speak of a place, Lebanon and Syrian, and then both provide some imagery of what's taking place. Skip like a calf and skip like a wild ox. They more or less line up. Now, both Lebanon and Syrian in this passage are both mountains. Now, you know that Lebanon is the name of a country, but it's also the name of a mountain or a mountain range. And I showed you in that picture there, the second slide, it's these two mountain ranges really set side by side with a great valley between them. Syrian is another name for Mount Hermon. Mount Hermon is going to be the tallest mountain in ancient Israel. Deuteronomy chapter 3, verse 9 uh, it, it clues us in that the Mount Hermon is also called Mount Syrian. So we have something of an equal sign placed between them in that verse. And just to give you an idea, uh, Hermon is 9,200 feet tall. Mount Baker is 10,700 feet tall. So Mount Baker is a bit taller than Hermon. Well, some believe here that the transfiguration of Jesus took place there. But what we have are these massive coastal mountains. These are big mountains. And what do they do? What does this storm affect? They quake. They quake. That's the imagery of the second half of these verses. They skip like a wild calf and like a young ox. 
In other words, the power of this storm shakes the biggest of the mountains. Nahum 3 verse 2 will use this same word, this idea of skips, to describe a chariot as a horse is pulling it. You can imagine how that thing is shaking almost fearfully if it's going quickly. The voice of the Lord shook the mountains. Now, if you have a King James Version, you have a different conclusion to that verse, don't you? Opponents of Scripture are going to look to this verse in an attempt to undermine its truthfulness. What does it say? The Lord makes the mountains skip like a young unicorn. That's an unfortunate translation. I want to reassure you that no one at any point in the history of Bible translation has envisioned a pink pastel horse with long eyelashes and glitter. (laughs) That is not what this passage is teaching us. Now, when the translators of the King James Version went to produce their translation, they would have sought out many different manuscripts. And one of the ones they used was called the Latin Vulgate. It's a Bible written in Latin. The word for wild ox in their translation is pronounced unicornium. Now, originally, the Hebrew word would have meant a two-horned animal. Unfortunately, it got mistranslated here. But it's true that there are one-horned animals like the rhinoceros. They are fearsome beasts themselves. The point here is that the voice of the Lord is going to shake the greatest beasts on the earth and it's going to shake the greatest mountains or formations on the planet. And as these mountains are funneling these rapidly descending waters, the voice of the Lord hews out flames of fire. That's a good word. We know that lightning flashes. We say lightning strikes. David says lightning hews out. I think David's probably referring to to the appearance of clouds as they part and strikes of lightning coming down from them. It's almost as though God is carving out or cutting out lightning from these clouds. Lightning creates heat hotter than the sun. For a Lebanon cedar, unlucky enough to be struck by this lightning, the sap inside the tree instantly turns to steam and causes the tree to explode or the bark to rupture. The flashes that you and I see of lightning whenever a strike occurs travel at 670 million miles a minute. That means that lightning can travel to the moon in 55 minutes. Lightning strikes our planet 1.4 billion times a year. According to one's math, if each strike killed a person, we as a people would cease to exist in less than five years. The voice of the Lord hews out lightning. The voice of the Lord hews out flames of fire. And in our third movement now, David sees this massive storm travel out into the desert towards Kadesh. The voice of the Lord shakes the wilderness. The Lord shakes the wilderness of Kadesh. Often more of a a barren desert type of region. There are patches of life there, however. You may recall wilderness scenes in the Bible 
Moses led his people through the wilderness. David shelters in the wilderness. Our Lord himself is tempted there. But not even this, in this foreboding region, not even here can it escape the voice of the Lord. David notice, or notice David concludes his eyewitness account here. He, he underscores both the power and the terror of this storm. In verse 9, it appears that the terror of the storm causes a, a premature birth. Uh, the shock of the storm seems to induce labor among animal life. And even the power of the wind empties the branches of their leaves. We see that ourselves when trees are ready to shed their leaves and the wind blows through. In verse 9, David completes this rally to worship. He says, in his temple, everything says glory. In other words, remember, he's been calling upon the angels. He now commands everything down here to do what they up there are already doing. So what about you? Why this morning do you worship the Lord? Has David made a case for you, giving you cause to worship the Lord. And perhaps we may need to ponder a little while longer his power in creation. It may be worth pausing to consider how God is upholding his creation. Perhaps we must consider his strength working in our lives even this morning. Maybe it's his attributes, his characteristics, who he is and how he puts them on display in his created order. Or maybe we need to revisit that moment we came to saving faith, for we have many manifold reasons to worship the Lord. Each of us should be able to make a case, just as David did, for worship of the Lord. Well, at the end there, in the last two verses, we see this crown in worship. Don't forget that this voice of the Lord, this power in the storm, it seeks to bless you and to strengthen you as his follower. The same power manifest in this storm is going to be the the same power that God offers to his people. In verse 10, the Lord sat as king at the flood. Yes, the Lord sits as king forever. The Lord will give strength to his people. The Lord will bless his people with peace. This passage now takes us out of the wilderness into the throne room of Yahweh. It is the Lord who is king, and we see he is king forever. And notice that he sits indicates that there is indeed a throne there. Some of your Bibles do read, in fact, enthroned. God is enthroned. And he holds court. This is what sovereign rulers do. They hold court. He sits. God has no reason to stand. If he wants something done, he simply speaks. We've learned that today. We know that from the scriptures. And we see that he occupied this position from a long, long time ago. David was a big believer in the flood of Noah. He believed the flood account. The only other place that word for flood is used in verse 10 is in the flood account in Genesis. It's a deluge that's fixed as historic fact, and David recognizes that. This same God who ruled over the worldwide flood also rules over this storm. And the same God who manifested his power in this storm offers it to his people today. You see, God spoke in a storm, and God spoke in a man. The Bible says that in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was 
with God, and the Word was God. You and I have never seen Yahweh, but Jesus has explained Him to us. How has He done this? Well, the voice of the Lord is over many waters. Jesus spoke and He stilled the waters. He calmed the storm. The voice of the Lord breaks the cedars. Jesus spoke and that was the end of a fig tree. The voice of the Lord shakes the wilderness. Jesus spoke in the wilderness and shook his adversary. The voice of the Lord thunders. It was on the cross that Jesus cried out and all of creation shook. In Christ, the Lord will give strength to his people. The Lord will bless his people with peace. Friend, if you have believed upon Jesus, you will be saved. You will be redeemed. You will go to heaven to be in the presence of Jesus Christ immediately when you die because you've believed upon him, confessing your sin. You're going to be saved from judgment. You're going to be saved from wrath. You're going to be saved from hell. And now you are saved from trying to do everything on your own. Because the strength that God has manifested in this storm he offers to you this morning. The storm witnessed by David is not only a testimony to this might and power of a holy God, but it's a testimony to a gracious God who offers it to you and I as well. Call upon him. Talk to him. Bring whatever it is before him. And if you believe upon Jesus, God is going to bless you with peace. Romans chapter 5, verse 1, we've been justified by faith. We have peace with God. We've been declared not guilty before God by faith in Jesus Christ. And this is huge for us. This is huge. I remember, or I know that we all come out of different walks of life when we come to faith in Jesus. But I can remember when I came out of my old life, that old life, there was not a peace. There was no fulfillment. And the worst part about it is I, I knew the gospel, I understood Bible stories, but I was not interested in living for God. And I'll tell you what, when the voice of the Lord spoke, he spoke very graciously, but that storm shook me violently. And I was very happy to come and trust in him. Now, I don't know what walk of life you're coming out of this morning, but whatever it is, the voice of the Lord is here to give you strength and here to give you peace. And if you have not yet come to faith in Jesus Christ by trusting in him, the Bible says you can have peace with God through faith in Jesus. The best part about this, one of the most ironic parts, I think, one of the most comforting realities of this psalm is that it comes out of one of the most terrifying realities. The voice of the Lord is a storm, but that power is no longer against you. This fury, this anger, all the wrath that, that is burning within God is not directed toward you, it was directed toward Jesus on the cross as he died for your sin. None of that power is against us, it's all for us, to give us strength and to give us peace. Let me pray for us this morning. Heavenly Father, I believe it is a, a mercy that we don't comprehend or see you in the fullness of your power and your purity and your glory. 
but it's also a grace that you've given us a glimpse. And we are so thankful for that, Lord. For we can be very blind. And you've opened our eyes to see the power of your voice in our storms. And you've given us a grace to find peace with you through Jesus Christ. Father, we thank you for that. We pray that the power available in Christ would not be lost on us today. That we would see how the beauty of your power connects to our problems and our struggles and our sin. That we would cry out to you and find your voice not to be aggressive, not to be angry, but to be a whisper and a source of great grace in our ear. We love you, Father, and we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.